right, live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I was just looking out in the audience. We've got Bishop Burl sitting out here who has a show. We were talking about it with Adams Road, who's in town. We're going to try to tape them this week and show it next week or the following. And uh, we're talking about Bishop Burl's body of work that he's done. And, and uh, then Warren, he, he met with us, Warren Puckett of Breaking Bread. And so we have another one. Then we have Heidi Wangsgaard. She's starting up a, a show about hope. So we're adding to that, and slowly things are happening, just more and more things to bring out stuff and making them available to you. So we're grateful you're with us. I'm Sean McCraney, your host. Let's have a prayer, and then we'll get right to it. Lord, help us in our discussion tonight, the things that we're going to talk about, and help me to be able to articulate the things you want me to say and the things that uh, are not worth it. Let's just forget them. And uh, we love you and seek you and need you. We pray for your spirit to work upon all of us, especially those who don't know you yet. And, but are looking for truth. Pray for this in Jesus' name. Oh, and bless Larry and, and Derek who are out and uh, who are here with us every week because they don't feel well for different reasons. Help them uh, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to uh, open the doors wide in 2017. We're looking for 50 guests and uh, not necessarily LDS or former LDS. We want people who claim a relationship with Jesus, who say they are Christian, but who may or may not adhere to the way uh, we might think that orthodoxy needs to be followed. Now, they can be extremely orthodox, too. They can be on the far right side of orthodoxy. We want them to. We want anybody to come and, and, and talk about their perspective. And we've had some interesting emails. I'm going to get to one later. But it's really important to what we're trying to do here in Heart of the Matter. People all believe that the position that they maintain is, is the right position. That's why we believe what we believe, because we think it's the right way. And so it's really important to, to get exposed to other views so that you can test what you believe and what you think against what other people ardently believe and think. And, and so you can see, well, am I as firm in what I stand for in the faith? And it's really on differing, not, uh, not non-negotiable, differing uh, positions that you don't die on, hills that you don't die on. Uh, we won't be interviewing people who uh, deny Christ or deny God. That, that's a waste of time to me. But people who might see uh, God or Christ differently or whatever it might be. So um, there's all kinds of factors that could make this a fruitless experiment, and so, which is <clears throat> why it's difficult to do. But uh, I think truth seekers will glean the good from the dialogues and they'll be able to discard the, the superfluous or the things that aren't worth it. And that's what you kind of have to do, you know. You take the, the good things and then you kind of sift through. You let your mind and your heart with the Spirit sift through the things that don't necessarily make sense to you or that you don't believe and you just, you get rid of them. And by us doing that, we can all see that, you know, we're not going to kill each other. We're not going to... We're going to have a good engagement. So please help us at the bottom line. Send us names of people, individuals you think will bring good content to the table. Some of you have already provided us with names, which we're following up on, but 50 shows. If, if we can't do 50, you know, we'll do 20 or 10 and fill up the rest with other things. But we would like to make 2017 a year of guests. And with that, how about a moment from Zawud? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. 
Last week we had a caller, uh, he sounded, I don't remember his name, I'm sorry, but he sounded Polynesian and he's called before and he wanted to know, listen, if, if the Bible was written for the people of that day and age specifically, then how does it apply to us today or does it apply to us? How is it used? And I explained that within the New Testament, there are passages that, tell, that directly speak to what it will be like uh, after the fulfillment of the age, uh, which I uh, believe happened at the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, what passages speak to what a Christian will look like, I just want to cover tonight really quickly uh, because they're important. I just want you to hear them. Jeremiah 31, 33, Jeremiah writes and he says, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, after those days, saith the Lord. He's talking about after the days that all the prophecy has been talking about. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. So we can see, do you see that? That God says, I will write my law on their inward parts. That's a very different picture than having the law written in a book that we go by as a manual to keep everybody in charge. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3, 3, for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. So again, we have a passage there that talks about how and that we are the epistles of Christ and we're not written with ink on paper and, or in stone. He's written himself on our heart. And so then when people meet us, they, they see the heart we have when we forgive them or we go the extra mile and love them or, or be kind to them or merciful or whatever it is. And so that is how we're the written epistles. The writer of Hebrews said this, echoing the sentiments of Jeremiah, so it's kind of a, uh, he's pulling from what Jeremiah said, but he said, for if that first covenant had been faultless, talking about the law, then should no place have been sought for the second. So now he's talking about the second covenant, which was Christ Jesus bringing and by grace. For finding fault with them, he said, God said, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not my covenant nor regarded them, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor. Now, does that sound like today? Does that sound like what the churches do today? To me, it doesn't. It sounds like we're still trying to do what was before. He goes, and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their uh, unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities while I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he has made the first old. Listen to this. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now there's a principle there. He says, that which, which decayeth and waxeth old. And he's, he's talking, he's giving us an imagery of the things of the former covenant, which were based in material living and life, 
were beginning to decay. That's the only thing that could decay. And wax old, crumbling, falling apart, right? This is a really important passage to understand when I read you the next one. Uh, so the old was ready to vanish the, away with the new uh, coming in, which is defined by Scripture as being written on our hearts and written on our minds, and slowly stepping in and taking over. Now, at this point, do we take the Bible and use it? Of course we do. That's how we read and we learn individually. We take it by the candlelight and we read it and we are inspired and we learn how to be. But it is not the manual we go by. The manual we go by is what's written on the heart. That's what we're going by. Someone called me today and I was talking to him and I said, look, at when, when it says in, in the New Testament and don't go to Ephesus today, do you think that applies to us? Of course it doesn't. That's a material direction. Things like that have no bearing on us. And, and we find that stuff all through the scripture. But the spirit of the scripture definitely plays a role and part in our lives. And we have to remember that. So the New Testament epistles are a blessing for us to read individually and collectively to study. Believe me, trust me, I am not against them. But I am trying to say, I think that we have misappropriated them. Uh, because they are written in the material book, isn't that different than what God says he'll do after that day when he says, I'll write them in the heart and on the mind. If we have them an actual book, isn't that having that book and look, leaning upon it to govern each other really opposite of what God says he'll do in that day after the day is done? So I'm talking about the day and age that the writer of Hebrews, and I'm going to cover this last, says that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. I know you've heard this before, but repetition is uh, the mother of remembering. Uh, and listen, the writer of Hebrews says that God is going to come and he says one more time, I'm going to shake everything. And I'm going to shake it so hard in heaven and on earth that anything that can be shaken is going to be destroyed. And what will remain are only the things that cannot be shaken, okay? And that's found in Hebrews uh, chapter 10. When was this shaking? This is important. I believe, R.C. Sproul believes, Hank Hennegraaff believes. The only difference between my views on eschatology and Hank Hennegraaff's is he believes everything from uh, Revelation 20, 21 and 22 is still going to happen. I happen to believe it's all happened, but that's the only difference when we look at things. Hanegraaff believes everything happened with Jerusalem's destruction, except for those last three chapters of Revelation. He's the Bible answer man. I mean, people hold me up and they, they want to crucify me for this little belief. Man, I'm not alone in this. I didn't come up with it either. So when did God shake everything? The writer of Hebrews says God said one more time, I'm going to shake everything. When did he do it? I say it was 70 AD when a million plus Jews were wiped out carnage unseen then or thereafter, even worse than World War I or II or Vietnam, uh, the magnificent temple leveled, the genealogies burned, shaken. Could they be shaken? They were shaken. The priesthood abolished. All that could be wiped out was wiped out, very symbolic, very over, very done in ashes. What else was abolished forever? Anything that could be shaken would not remain. Okay, so now where do I get all this from? It's in Hebrews 12, 26. I'm going to read it to you at verse 26. It said, 
whose voice then shook the earth, talking about God. But now he, God has promised, meaning now in this day and age, this same God has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not the earth only, but also the heaven. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean the stars are going to fall out of the sky? That is symbolic language to say that the, the economy of heaven even is going to be shaken at that time. When he comes back, the earth is going to be shaken of all its religious, earthly religious uh, uh, appellations, shaken down, and heaven is going to be shaken. When he returns, there will be judgment. It will all be wiped out. Now, that's very Hebrew, Hebraic language. What could be shaken would be anything on earth that could fall, principles included, all right? This verse 27, and his statement, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken. The removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, meaning they have been made, they are shaken, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Okay? This is the writer of Hebrews talking about our day. We're in a day that where things that cannot be shaken remains. Okay? Anything else that can be shaken does not remain. Shouldn't remain. We shouldn't erect it. We shouldn't look to it. It doesn't remain. Now I ask you, what could the writer mean when he says that God says one more time, the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, what does that say or mean to you? I think it is saying that in the new covenant, when it is completed, the age is completed of the old, God will write his laws upon our hearts and our minds. Nothing that can be shaken, upset, broken, twisted, nothing that can or will fail will remain. Got that? Now I've got a question for you. The, the caller last week wanted to know about the, the place of the Bible and, and all the religionists and all the... Can a brick-and-mortar institution be shaken? You bet your white teeth they can be shaken. Can uh, men and boards of men be shaken? Absolutely. Can a denomination be shaken? Yes. Can a church, can a system of religion? Yes, yes, yes. Shaken, shaken, shaken to the core. They're shaken all the time. Shaken up, there's apostasy, there's division, all the time. All shakable, all unreliable, all failing. That's why the new covenant, we do not look to men for our discipline. We do not look to men for our governess. Or we don't look to any of the stuff that was created in the Old Testament ways. Uh, nothing in the primitive church that was there to help the saints to prepare for the end. All of that has been shaken to the ground. Now listen to what the writer concludes with. And his statement, meaning God's statement, yet once more, signifying the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now listen, this could not be more clear. Wherefore, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. We are receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. A kingdom that cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for God is, our con uh, God is a consuming fire. I want to know, are you part of a kingdom that cannot be moved? That's the question you need to ask yourself. I'm not. Look, the, the Pope can turn from God. The LDS prophet could start wearing dresses. Uh, the Baptist can start killing people. 
the, the building we meet in campus can fall to the ground right now, kill us all, or we can get out. It can fall to the ground. It's all essentially meaningless in comparison to the kingdom that can't be shaken. Where does it live? In the heart of believers. That can't be shaken. It can't be moved when the presence of the kingdom is there. Okay? That's all shakable stuff. So the kingdom doesn't belong to people in shiny shoes. It doesn't belong to brick and mortars. It belongs to God by and through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That's what remains. So the kingdom I belong to doesn't need your tithes and offerings. Uh, you know, financial support is great. It helps, helps but it does, it's not needed. God will provide. If you are being told by a shakable man uh, that you have to relinquish something before him, your freedom, your direct access to God, your, your money, your time, your energy, uh, or uh, anybody is telling you to embrace a shakable entity, do not believe it. That is contrary to what the writer of Hebrews said was coming one last time, and I believe that happened. And that kingdom that we belong to now cannot be moved. It cannot be moved. It's going to continue to uh, move forward and have life. And with that, how about a moment from the Board of Direction? Uh, we've openly wondered about the afterlife on the show. I've wondered about total reconciliation. How does God bring people in? What does it look like? All believers, non, how does every tongue confess and every... Uh, every uh, knee bow. What does that look like? I've recently been wondering a lot about resurrection. We've taught about it at campus for the past few weeks as it's come up. And most of you know I believe that God will reconcile all of his creations to himself. That I believe that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I don't believe that every pe all people will be saved. I think people will suffer loss. But uh, I do believe that there will be a reconciliation. I also believe that when Paul said in Galatians 6, 7 through 8, listen, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So now we have uh, the idea of what we've sown in our flesh. If it's to our flesh, it's to our flesh. And it's not going to go on after this life. And if it's to our spirit, it will be to our spirit. And then we also know that all will be resurrected. So we have resurrection coming into play. All people, Jesus said there'll be a resurrection of the damned and the resurrection of the, uh, to life eternal. So we have resurrection, reaping what we sow, punishment, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing. And then there's a passage that has always bewildered me, and it's Jesus says, and this is life eternal. You ready? That they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. He says, knowing God and Jesus Christ is life eternal. And so how is our knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ who God has sent equivalent to life eternal? We bring that factor into it as well, taking all this, the promised resurrection of all people, the fact that we will reap what we sow, that we sow to our flesh, we will reap to our flesh, and if we sow to our spirit, we will reap to our spirit, and that to know God and the only and Christ is life eternal. I wonder 
how does that look? And so we did an illustration on the board and I'm just gonna share that illustration with you before we get to our topic. Camera people, and what I wonder about is we have Jesus here, I didn't give him long hair, and we know that he is in, we're gonna call this the bosom of the Father. I mean, that is what scripture says. In fact, it says in, in Corinthians that he stepped from his throne and he is now, God is now all in all. Christ is in the bosom of the Father. That's where he dwells. The Father is spirit and light and Christ is there in the bosom of the Father, okay? We also know that those who suffer with him will be joint heirs. So we know that those who suffer with him will, after this life, with their resurrected bodies, they are those who have known the Father and the Son. They've also suffered with him. They are joint heirs. And so they're there in the center, in the midst of God. Okay? I, I wonder about humankind. We have a, I'm gonna make the resurrection to damnation, people with big bellies. Okay, we have these people, and then we have the people who are the resurrection to life eternal. What does that look like when it comes to where God dwells? And reaping what we've sown, and inheriting a mansion of a different type, and all of these different facets, we talked about Paul talking about having a resurrection that is of a different glory. So what does it look like? Well, I wondered if maybe as you go out, there, there are radiating spheres in which people will relate to God and his son, and they just keep going out and out and out and out and Maybe here in a certain realm, if we could color this yellow, maybe everybody here are resurrected beings who can abide in the light with their new resurrected body of God directly. And then if we were going to uh, take it out a little bit cooler, let's, let's make this red. And then maybe the people here, they are just sort of, have resurrected bodies that can sort of relate. And then maybe as we get out here, if this were green, these people are the resurrected bodies who they're sowing to their flesh, they live by their flesh, but maybe all of them have relationship with God and the way they know God and Jesus Christ is how God will relate to them. And where they are in that realm, maybe they believe that they are having relationship with God, maybe they are getting what they wanted. And maybe that is how the reconciliation works. And it just keeps going out to maybe the most slovenly group who didn't care about anything with God. They're in far distant relationship to him directly, far different than the people who are joint heirs with Christ, but they still are reconciled after having suffering loss, reaping what they've sowed, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just something to consider. I, I realize I'm just, uh, I'm just, making things up right now, but it's something to consider about the afterlife when it comes to Jesus saying, listen, after they have received a few stripes or after they've received many stripes, they will be let go or they, they won't get out until they've paid the uttermost farthing. Then we know there's a resurrection. And, and so it might, maybe it plays on some kind of continuum like that where God knowing everybody's choices and desires will reward them according to what they've done he'll still have relationship with them only by and through Christ because every one of those knees will have bowed and every one of those tongues will have confessed that Jesus is the Christ. 
but only in that core center where God really is are the joint heirs. Just a thought. All right. We left off last week talking about, uh, two weeks ago, creation and the fall. And uh, tonight I want to talk to you about the next logical step. If we've talked about the fall, and we covered that in one week, tonight let's talk about a word related directly to there being a fall. Atonement. Now, it's a big topic and an important one between the Mormon-Christian debate uh, and there's not a big divide between LDS people and Christians on the word atonement uh, itself. Both agree in the principle, especially the Old Testament principle, of atonement. Those of you who don't know, the LDS believe Jesus did suffer for the sin of the world. They do believe that. He atoned, he propitiated, he made satisfaction for the sin of the world. The LDS believe that, okay? So, uh, but the difference comes in, disagreement comes in with the full definition of how Christians view that atonement and the partial definition of how the Latter-day Saints view it. And if you've ever had a conversation of any length with any active Latter-day Saint, um, it doesn't take long before you're going to hear them use the word the atonement. There's it's kind of annoying because there's almost always a little bit of an accent, sort of. I don't know how to do the accent. I'm so grateful for the atonement. Um, in their testimony meetings, it usually comes out, uh, you know, I want to bear my testimony. I know the church is true. I know Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. I know we're guided by a living prophet today. I'm grateful for the atonement of Jesus Christ and so that I have the opportunity to live with my Heavenly Father again. That's kind of how a standard LDS testimony will happen every, one, every four or five weeks in their meetings. So what is it? What does it mean? Where did it come from? You know, why is it here? Where is it going? In Mormonism, the first use of the word atonement can be found in Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon. Okay? And in 2 Nephi 9.26 it says, for the atonement satisfies the demands of his justice upon all of those, and it goes on and talks about some doctrinal points. So the atonement satisfies the demands of God's justice. The interesting thing about the presence of the word atonement in the Book of Mormon is that atonement was a word made up by a man in the 1600s. Uh, it didn't exist before that. In the 16th century, there's a Bible scholar, and his name was William, he's a translator, William Tyndale. And he recognized that in English, there's, there wasn't a word that would be able to, with satisfaction, translate the Hebrew word for deific satisfaction. Or, so he saw that there was a problem that the Hebrews had this word that meant God is both satisfied and sin has been paid for, and he didn't know how to, how to do it. And so what he did was he took the word at, and he took the word one, and he put them together, at one, meaning man and God are at one meant, at one meant, and he made it up, okay? And so... That word was supposed to reflect the dual aspect of Christ's sacrifice, the remission of sin. 
He's paid for sin and the reconciliation of God and man. So uh, there's a dual aspect of Tyndale's purpose in creating at one meant. All right. Uh, and so Tyndale's concept overcomes the limitation of the word reconciliation, which, which just means God and man are back together. It, it, reconciliation doesn't seem to include the word for uh, the justification for sin. And so Tyndale said, listen, I got to come up with something better. Now, somehow that word at one meant was translated into a, a book that was apparently taken from golden plates written well before Tyndale ever made it up. So there's a problem right there with the word. Now, I understand how the LDS would defend that, but the word atonement is only found one time in the King James Version of the New Testament. And it's a, this point is really significant. So again, the term atonement is found in Romans 5.11 in the first translations of the King James Bible. But it has now been changed to reconciliation. And, uh, but as I said, the word is frequently used in the Old Testament and was used there to re to refer to when something was, when something had been made satisfactory in the presence of sin. Made, satis satisfaction had been had in the presence of sin for God. In Moses 32.10, Moses said, uh, in Exodus 32.10, Moses said, you have committed a great sin to the children of Israel. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So that's how it would be translated. So therefore, when atonement was done in the Old Testament, an act was done which would bring temporary satisfaction for sin that would reconcile the sinful person or sinful nation to God for a period of time. Uh, and that, is, would be, that period of time would be until a sin was repeated or until Christ came and made final propitiation or atonement for the sin. So it is only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, look, the blood of bulls and goats can't do it. It's only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ that permanent satisfaction can be had. But uh, in the Old Testament, atonement was a temporary covering for uh, the sin so that God could continue to get along with the people. So for the children of Israel under the law, the shed blood of animals made this atonement and the people's righteous living by faith and following the ordinances and the commandments and doing their works was requisite to show that they had a heart for God and were trying to follow him. By the phrase, the atonement of Christ, however, Christians generally mean everything that Christ did to bring us in perfect relationship with God. So it's not just that Christ suffered for sin and the world was reconciled to God and God reconciled to the world. And by the way, it works both ways in the, in the way I understand the word. But it was that Christ did everything, not just to reconcile us and to have our sin forgiven, but to also make us righteous before God through faith on Christ. So when speaking of Christ's saving work, the word satisfaction is the reformers, Luther and, and Erasmus and others, they liked satisfaction best. They liked it better than atonement. And the reason was, is because when God is satisfied, that means that everything that was out of the ordinary and disjointed 
has been corrected by and through Christ. So it's Christ's satisfaction before the Father by which we are saved and rendered uh, uh, clean, etc. And so it's not just the payment of sin and reconciliation of God to man and man to God. This means the demands to not only propitiate sin, Christ did, but he also fulfilled the demands for holy living. And he also fulfilled the, man, the demands for uh, do, uh, living from love. He obeyed the law out of love for God, the first commandment, and love for us, the second commandment. Where we can obey commandments, but it might be for other motivation, his righteous works were done out of the pure motive that we could not conjure up. Uh, we might do it out of fear that he's going to hurt us. Christ did not do it out of fear that he will hurt us. Christ didn't do it out of fear he's going to go to hell or whatever it was. Christ did it out of pure love. And out of doing it out of pure love, his righteous works then are made completely acceptable, satisfactory to God. And when we believe on Christ, we are imputed with his righteousness. You see, to a Latter-day Saint, it doesn't work that way. To a Latter-day Saint, Christ has done the atoning work, he shed his blood for their sin, but their righteousness is what makes God look upon them with, uh, with kindness and mercy and love. And, and I'm so proud of you, how, you know, whatever they used to say uh, to returning missionaries, uh, well done now, good and faithful servant. So atonement to the LDS means he paid for our sin. You got to earn your own righteousness. Atonement to a Christian means he did everything. And by looking to him, we are not only forgiven of our sin, we're not only reconciled to God, but we are made holy by the imputation of Christ's righteousness into our lives. Because of that total at one meant satisfaction, propitiation, however you want to put it, the Christian then says, I now am going to die to my flesh and try to live more the way Christ uh, would want me to, because I'm so grateful for what he's done. That is what the ultimate result is. But that's why the thief on the cross, who did no works of righteousness, and he didn't even confess his sin really, but Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross was justified and sanctified that moment by believing on Christ, who fulfilled both those elements. The LDS don't believe the thief on the cross would have had salvation simply because he didn't do anything worth righteousness. There's no deathbed repentance uh, for a Mormon. And so there lies the biggest difference when it comes to atonement between a Latter-day Saint and a Christian, okay? And one other thing, we have to remember that it, it has to constantly be kept in mind that the atonement or the satisfaction or the reconciliation is not the cause of God loving us. Okay? Uh, it's, it is the result of God loving us. People get that mixed up sometimes. They think Jesus did it and now God loves us. No. God loves us as sinners. Christ loved us as sinners and just remember John 3, 16, for God so loved the world he gave. That is all before atonement being made. He loved us first. He gave his son. His son propitiated uh, God to the world, the world to God. 
the sanctification was done, the justification was done, all because God loved us first, not because Christ atoned for us uh, first. And if that's not if that's uh, not understood, you will make mistakes later on down the road, and you're thinking about what Christ has done. So that's why we joyfully read in Romans five one. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then listen to what it says in verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. There's this idea out there that, you know, Jesus did, and if he didn't, God would hate our guts. You know, he would still be angry and he would still be hating us. That is not true. Romans 5, 1 and 6 proves that's not true. That, that God in his love toward us, while we were still sinners, sent his son to die for us. We learn here that God demonstrated his love, and he is love, and he continues to love uh, while we were yet sinners. So, and then in verse uh, 9 of Romans 5, I'll read that and we'll go to the phones. It's, uh, Paul writes, much more than, listen, having now been justified by his blood, there's the justification part of Christ's work, shall we be saved from wrath through him? For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled through God, through faith, you got that? If we were enemies... He goes on and says, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? That means by the life he lived, by the holiness that he brought, the good works he did, how much more? If we've been reconciled and justified by his death, Paul says, how much more will, be, will we be reconciled and justified by his, sanctified, he says, by his life? That's the imputation of his righteousness into those who believe. So when we go about and we try to establish our own righteousness, it's a complete mistake in the face of what Christ did through the atonement, the true atonement. The LDS have yet to grasp that, and they're still following what Romans 10 says, which is, Paul says, you know, I really, my heart goes out to my brothers because they go around to establish their own righteousness, not understanding the righteousness of God. Now, the other shoe is, of course, what do you do with that once you have been justified and sanctified, made holy, made perfect in God's eyes by and through faith on the shed blood of his son? Well, that's a different story. And that's, that's, that's when it comes to taking up your cross and being joint heirs with Christ and all the rest of that stuff. But the, the good news is Christ came and he did it all for us. That is the good news. And upon that, we can trust. So let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. And while the operators are taking your call, and I have no screen, so you're going to have to, if we have any calls, you've got to yell it out to me. Wendy, I can't see. Uh, we have a spot to show you right now. Jesus was born, and his birth was celebrated. And he grew in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. 
and then his time had come. Revival, miracles, praise from the masses. But soon, those same masses turned and walked no more with him. And Jesus, in truth, suffered alone. He was mocked, denied, forsaken. He was killed on a cross like a criminal outside the city gates where the masses thrived. As sold out followers of him, how could we in our lives expect anything different? Spot. Love it. Uh, we're going to Ryan in Virginia, line one. Ryan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Wendy, you said line one. Is it line two? Line two, there's a Kathy from South Jordan. We're going to go to Kathy in South Jordan. Ryan will come back. Kathy from South Jordan. Kathy? Yeah. Hey, you're on the air. Oh, okay. John, I was wondering, uh, as I recall, we were saying a while ago that we're not raised with this body, like the LDS Church teaches, that as this body that goes into the grave is a body that will come up and right. be renewed, but we'll have a spiritual body. So right. if we have a spiritual body and spirit is invisible, will we be able to see one another? I mean, it's a question that Joe's been asking for a long time. If God is spirit, and you can't see spirit, and we're raised with a spiritual body, will we be able to see one another? I'm sure, uh, Kathy, that the that physical scene uh, is, is probably not part of that environment. The eyes we have here, while as beautiful and miraculous as they are, I'm not sure that would be part of it. It seems like a spiritual, if God is the spirit, and we are raised with spiritual bodies, based on the mercy of God and what he wants to give us, then to me, the knowing would be even more powerful than the physical scene. And so we would probably see with our mind's eye, but that's just all uh, speculation on my part. It kind of reminds me okay. of those, uh, on those movies of aliens that don't have eyes and yet they, they know everything that's going on around them. It uh, might be kind of oh. like that. Oh, okay. Well, I wondered, you know, if, if spirit could see spirit. Yeah, I would imagine oh. a spirit can see spirit, you know, however but that we just works. we can't see it with our physical eyes. Right, like, oh. we, like we can't see spirits with our physical eyes here, you know. And, right. And God is called the invisible God to us. So with the natural eye, I'm sure we, we are not capable of seeing them, but with the spiritual eyes we can. I see. Okay, well, I, Joe's been asking me that a lot, so I just thought I would call in and ask, and I kind of... The, the thing you did on the board. Yeah. So that's kind of like degrees of glory, kind of, isn't it? Like Joseph Smith. Yeah. Which is only not terrestrial, telestial, that kind of stuff. But 
that goes out and out and out and out. Yeah, I mean, and the only reason I come, I say that is to try to echo the message of Scripture. Paul says there are, so is the resurrection. There are different glories. And he says, so is the resurrection. And so we know that when I believe that when Jesus said, um, in my father's house are many mansions, I believe that is talking about the many different spiritual resurrected glorified bodies that we will get. Now, in terms of kingdoms and stuff, I don't believe that. But I do believe that there is something about the rewards and reaping and sowing in the spiritual bodies that have to do with the glories based on 1 Corinthians uh, 15. Okay, so it so it's not it's not different kingdoms, it's just different glories. Yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah. Different glories. And so that would be the many mansions. Yeah. And I and I always love to think and it finally came to me when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Yeah. He means that he's gonna prepare for it. He didn't say I had to send up lumber to heaven to build my own mansion or right. to make my own so it's not through my words of righteousness like the Mormons believe. Right. So. Yeah, that's right. He, he builds it based on what he knows and the faith and love that we've had for him and, and his mercy and love. And yeah, I mean, an eye hasn't seen, an ear has not heard, the glories that await them that love him. Okay, well, I'll know a little better what to tell Joe. <laughs> tell Joe. Thank you, Sean. Okay, Thank appreciate you. you. See you later. Thanks. Uh, are we getting Ryan from Virginia back on? That is a no. Let me go to some emails. We only have about 10 minutes left. And the emails are... Oh, I'm going to read this to you. Uh, I got an, uh, a copy of this email from somebody who receives an email distribution from a ministry. And the ministry is one of these that goes out to LDS uh, Temple... Uh, uh, dedications and, and LDS events and protests or uses loudspeakers or holds up signs and things. And uh, the email says this from this ministry. Uh, the Afton, Wyoming LDS Temple open house begins soon. Afton is in the middle of nowhere, three and a half hours away from where we live. It looks like we'll have to drive about an hour and a half each way uh, to stay in a hotel. Uh, he continues, I've talked on the phone with a few local pastors about having a place to stay and possibly speaking at their church, but they all seem dead set against me coming. Uh, they think along with the Mormons that what I do is disrespectful and it will only cause LDS to be further repelled from the local Christian churches. And, and so what happened is this person who runs this ministry, they go out and they protest and uh, and he asked the pastors there from the different churches, hey, will you put me up when I come to do this? And also, will you let me speak in your church? And he then included a letter from the pastor back to him in this email. And it says, dear, and I'm going to say, Jim, I have received part of your material to which you referred and have prayerfully considered your request. Now, remember that line, okay? While I agree with your convictions and admire your passion, I do not agree with your methods. As I mentioned, when you called evangelical leaders and churches in Star Valley have worked hard the last several years to build loving, respect-based relationships with our LDS friends and neighbors. And we are beginning to see some fruit of that. 
While we don't agree with them theologically, we honor their right to worship and believe as they see fit, and we respect their celebration of an event that is huge to them. Your confrontational methods would undo lots of that work and potentially create an adversarial relationship that puts them on the defensive and destroys the trust we are trying to build. I, I at this point in my life, I can't help but applaud this pastor and the pastors around who have taken this stance. He continues in his letter, I ask that you not come to this particular temple opening. Allow the churches that God has established and is growing here the chance to continue, lovingly reach out to the LDS and trust that God will work through the local church uh, efforts. I am denying your request to speak in our church and we will not house you. I wish you well in the ministry God has called you, respecting your right as well to discern before God and how he has called you to minister, but I do not believe it is appropriate in the Star Valley at this time, end quote of the letter. The ministry leader then, he's petitioning out to get support to help him, says, do you agree with this pastor or do you think the body of Christ should utilize all of its parts? Do you think respect should fit this pastor's definition of how this pastor de defines respect or should respect uphold God's standards and look more like what's going on in the book of Acts? Here is a prime example of taking a book and using its contents to justify behaviors that are not necessarily parallel to our day. Here's a classic example. The guy goes on, the local Christian churches have zero outreach during this time. LDS expect around 70,000 in just over two weeks. So it seems like a great opportunity to get the word out to the LDS in that particular area. I have talked with my board as well as others involved in outreach to the LDS. He drops some names here. And we think it's important for me to be out there during this time. And then he goes on, he gives a passage of scripture, says, Part, partner with me in this end. Will you invest in this upcoming mission trip? Please don't delay. I need to make arrangements soon. Make a check out to blah, 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 and mail it to this address. Or you can give online, blah, blah, blah. And then he gives estimate his financial needs. And he ends with this. Please pray for this whole situation. So we have a pastor who's kind of representing his own church and then others in that area where the temple is going to have the open house. He has written and said he's prayerfully request, uh, sought God in this matter and he has written this ministry and he said, do not come. We have made efforts here in reaching the LDS people and we're beginning to see fruit. And this ministry leader is going to just ride roughshod over that request and he is going to go out there anyway. And he is asking his people to pray for the whole situation. What do you think the solution is? What do you think should happen there? And since I always teach that, look, there's no governing board here, this would be expected. One person is going to believe their approach is the right way. The other churches are going to suggest that they don't want that. What should prevail here? Do you, do you have an idea on that? If you do, write us, tell us. We'll talk about it next week. Uh, this is from David. He says, since Hillary Clinton is running for president, I have a lot of people mention she is a Jezebel. And speak of the Jezebel spirit being narcissistic, vindictive, power hungry, and downright evil. I have heard people mention the feminist movement is of the Jezebel spirit. What do you think about this? I think Christianity ought to shut the heck up about all of it, every bit of it. Vote, don't vote, keep it to yourself. 
whatever you're going to do as an American, but leave the faith out of it, assigning Jezebel. I mean, what is laid here at one uh, political uh, party that they are narcissistic, vindictive, power hungry, and, and if you can't apply that to most people running for office, you know, you're really probably being unfair. You're, you're making a judgment preferentially with James Warren's against. I'd suggest we just keep our mouths quiet, humbly go about trying to serve God instead of man. Uh, Vincent says, I have heard uh, you might want to do a multiply faith show uh, in 2017. I have a few uh, ideas for your guests. Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries. I don't know if Dr. James White uh, will be on the show with me, but we will ask. He's had some heartburn with me in the past, and, uh, but he might. Uh, Zachary Bauer of New to Torah and Paul Nilsson of Torah Life Ministries. Both of these men are Christians who believe we need to go back to Torah, meaning we need to go back and embrace the Old Testament and its laws. Now, that's something Paul strictly talked against. This is a movement that is afoot, and I'm going to write them and ask them if they'll be on. That would be interesting. And Thomas Smith, a former Mormon turned Catholic, he's in Idaho. Uh, that would be very interesting. So we will uh, contact them. Uh, by email and make the invitation and see if we can work it out. Uh, in the meantime, just a reminder to you at home, if you know of people, email sean at aletheamedia.com, email us and say, hey, consider this guy, consider this woman, consider this group, have them on. And particularly in the Intermountain West, it's easier just for traveling if there's groups up there. Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, LDS, uh, Westboro Baptists. I'm going to contact the Westboro Baptists and see if we can get them on here. I want to contact anybody who claims Christ as Lord and Savior and try to see what ground we can agree upon and ask the questions back and forth so that you can hear what people believe and what they think. Receive this from Carlos. He says, I saw the episodes concerning the caller James. Some of you might remember that. He's mainstream Christian church. I don't think you'll find any room to sway someone like that because I'm assuming he's not a preterist. Carlos makes a really important point. If someone doesn't believe Christ came back yet, then it seems the New Testament was directly written to us as well. That is absolutely true. If we can prove that partial or full preterism is a, a falsehood, if we can show that Revelation could not have been written pre-70 AD, that would end preterism. If Christ is coming back, physically still, I have completely misled you, completely, when it comes to the purpose of the Bible in our lives. Simply because it still should offer a work as a manual to govern the body that Christ is going to come back and save. You understand? So if futurism is true, uh, and that's the view that Christ is coming back in the future still to get his church and rapture those who believe, then I believe that the New Testament writers' uh, information and insights do have um, physical application to us. And that means that everything that has been shaken has not been shaken yet. God is going to do that later. And if he's going to do it later, then we better be on our best behavior and we better be looking for that. 
I still think we ought to be on our best behavior because we're going to return to him and, and be raptured to him individually. But nevertheless, he, Carlos makes out a really important point, and that's the importance of preterism. I had a site mailed to me uh, the other day. It said, the name of the site is Preterism Matters. And it does matter because if you embrace the view, then you're going to see resurrection. You're going to see the purpose of the material Bible in your lives differently than if futurism is true and preterism is false. Uh, last thing here. Jeanette wants to know if my wife is my hairdresser. And uh, I would have to tell you that tonight she was. <laughs> She also dressed me in my um, UPS uniform. Anyway, we love you guys. Keep seeking for truth. Send us your information about speakers. Send us uh, queries and questions about uh, your search. It helps us. And uh, we'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind